Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast by and for trial lawyers looking for better ways to serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. John Simon. We're here for part two, talking about intellectual property with an emphasis on artists with Yvette Liebesman. Welcome back. Thank you. Art is so important for a community, but I didn't realize what a big industry it was. I see a note here from 2015, $763 billion. It's 4.2% of the gross domestic product. So, of course, there would need to be an industry, a legal industry, to help sort out the rights among users and producers and so forth. So um, we'll continue on that, in that conversation. But maybe, maybe for starters, we've talked about copyright. Could you tell us how it breaks down? The thing about music is that you have to distinguish between the musical composition and the sound recording. And there's different rights for each. So if I compose a song, I write the song, I am the composer. And I get certain rights. When I have my copyright, I have the right to, to reproduction, adaptation, public distribution, public performance, public display. The sound recording has fewer rights. A sound, the person who owns the copyright in the sound recording doesn't have a public performance right and by its very nature doesn't have a public display right. But they added a right to the Copyright Act to allow for public performance of digital broadcasts. So sound recordings have that right. So it's the difference between playing a song on Keishi versus playing it on Sirius Radio. So Sirius Radio is digital broadcast, and there is a right there. But if it's played on Keishi, only the composer has rights, not the person who made the sound recording. I play music occasionally in a coffee house, and I play some covers and then some of my own. And I've noticed a few coffee houses don't allow any live music anymore because they've been, as they told me, they've been audited by BMI or ASCAP and told to buy a, a license to allow someone else to come in and play. Could you comment a little bit about what, what that's all about? Okay, well, that's about the public performance right of the musical composer. So if there's a song that is under copyright... They have the right to decide who gets to publicly perform their song. And rather than all of these musicians trying to deal with them themselves, they join a guild. They join either ASCAP, BMI, or one of the others. And those folks handle the licensing. And you, there's two folks who can get the licenses. They either the venue or the actual artist. Either one. Because the, the venue is just as much on the hook for any infringement that is done by the performer because the Copyright Act says that the copyright owner has the right to do or authorize these uses. So the coffee shop is authorizing that public performance so that that is why they go after the coffee shops. They're easier to find and usually have more money than the artists also. If we can go back to... Uh, the cost of a violation. I assume that a lot of these covers are registered. If if BMI came in and and heard me play "Hey Jude," one song is 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 that one hundred and fifty thousand dollars? If you didn't have a license, it could be. It's if it's willful, it could be one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. This is one of those situations where permission is way cheaper than forgiveness. 
way cheaper to just get the license. So what's the statute of limitations on that? It, I think it's three years. Well, I'll leave though. <laughs> <laughs> what about this? And it isn't, it's out of the like mm-hmm. artist realm, but public documents like court cases, Westlaw, I, I guess, how can they, it's a public document. It's uh, available to everybody. And how does that work? How, what protection does a company like Westlaw or a company that publishes statutes or court opinions, do they have any protection? Very little. First of all, Section 105 of the Copyright Act specifically says government works are not copyrightable. And the defini- so the law has to be available to everybody. Court cases have to be available to everybody. Laws have to be available to everybody. There's a case before the Supreme Court right now, though, involving Georgia's laws. And Georgia, while the law itself is not copyrightable, the only way to get it is via an annotated version. The annotation, annotated version is what's available. And the, is that what makes it copyrightable, the annotation? That's, it shouldn't be, and that's what the issue is before uh. the co- Supreme Court, is that the people who did the, the annotations are also done by the legislatures, by the legislator, and they're claiming copyright in these annotations. And basically, since the annotations, while they're merely guidances, they also affect how the law is done. So... Westlaw will try to claim copyright in things like their key sites and their summaries of the law. And those are the things that they add to that. For a while, they were trying to claim the star pagination as copyrighted. But what they're doing is they're trying to add something that is not the law in order to make give copyright to some form of it. Does that give them protection over the whole, the whole work? It does not. It does not. And I print out Westlaw articles, and at the very bottom it says copyright Westlaw, but then it says no copyright in government works. But they are trying to claim copyright in the things that they have added to it. I started a blog about 15 years ago and didn't realize I was getting into some legal issues. Co-authors thought they could, of course, copy it because it was on the Internet. We had had some battles about that. But also there, there were many concerns about how much you could quote somebody from another article. Do you have something you can offer about how much it's safe to quote someone else? I really can't. <laughs> it's very fact-specific. So if I'm quoting, I, I quote all the time in my law review articles. Now we're talking about something called fair use, where when you're quoting them for criticism, commentary, to make a statement, where you're relying on someone's work for that. So if I quote another law review article, that author has copyright in it, but I am using it as part of my work. I'm transforming it. I'm using it for commentary. So you can't just throw quotes around the whole work and say, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) No. No. (laughs) It wouldn't get published because the first thing they would do is say, hey, you know, this work, like, in its whole is published elsewhere. (laughs) And then that's, like, one of the few things I can get fired for. I'm repeatedly surprised at where these issues pop up. They're just everywhere. I created a website. I hired a graphic designer to help me with a logo and with some some wording and she said I want this particular font and it's not on Microsoft Word so I had to go buy permission a license to use a font Mm -hmm. but I also know that there's these end user license agreements could you comment a bit on how that works you mean the agreements that no one ever reads yeah you know you know can I use Microsoft Word fonts anywhere for anything or, or do I have to buy licenses Fonts are different, and there's a lot of different thoughts about fonts. Helvetica, for example, the whether fonts are 
copyrightable or not is a big issue that we could spend the entire time talking about that because there's different views on fonts. What's very interesting, though, when you bring up your graphic designer is that when your graphic designer created your logo and your website, unless you have an agreement that assigns you those rights, she owns the copyright in your design of your logo and your website and in the code. So what you're saying is if you just hire a website designer, they design your website, it's up and running, it's not yours, it's theirs. Well, they're an independent contractor. Let's say someone on your fat, let's say you hire someone to be an employee and their job as your employee is to set up your website. Now that's a work made for hire and that's okay. But let's say that's not what you do. And instead you hire, you, you instead get a graphic designer, an independent contractor to do that for you. That is their work. It's not a work made for hire unless it falls under one of very specific nine categories and designing a website is not one of them. Why is that? Well, it used to be that um, independent contractors were considered works made for hire, but it, there was a, an imbalance there. But it doesn't mean you can't have those rights. It means that when you contract with that in, independent contractor, you say point blank, I assign all rights to Simon Law Firm. I give a worldwide irrevocable perpetual license to Simon Law Firm. Just because they own the copyright doesn't mean you can't have an agreement that transfers it to you. And what about anything else that's developed or created by an employee? Is it always the employer that has um, the rights to it? Unless there is an agreement otherwise. So now we have to have an agreement in the opposite direction. So I'm a law professor at SLU, at St. Louis University. Normally, it, anything I wrote, all of my law review articles would belong to SLU. But our faculty manual, my agreement with SLU says, no, I own them. I own the copyright in my works. Same with the, the patents. A lot of patents obviously are you know, in, in departments at big companies, and mm -hmm. some of the engineers might develop something. And I'm, I'm assuming the bigger, more sophisticated companies have something in place. It depends. Patent law is a little different in the sense that you must have the actual inventor sign the application, and a corporation cannot be an inventor. But you can have agreements saying they agree that all they will assign all patents. And the way they work it, too, is that there's always incentives. If I invent something really cool and I'm working for a company, they want to patent it, and I get the incentive of getting a percentage of whatever money they make off of it. But when I'm signing that application, I'm also signing an agreement that says I'm giving all rights to the company. The ones that fall, you know, the ones that don't remember to do all those things are the ones that wind up in trouble. So it's to my benefit because I don't want to have to pay for the patent attorney. That's expensive. Yeah. I'd rather have the you firm want to do incentivize it. everybody. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And at SLU, the way the way I always describe it, it depends on who's paying who. If I'm a grad student and I'm paying tuition, anything I invent belongs to me. If I am a faculty member and Slu's paying me, yes, you want to see Yes. Ah. It's, think about it as who's, who's getting paid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's the person who's doing the paying who owns the IP. So. I've been trying to restrict my time from Facebook for several years now, but I, I keep going back. And I, it's, it's quite a place. It seems like the Wild West. Is there, is there anything you can offer about where a person can be comfortable that they're not doing anything wrong on Facebook by sharing a link or sharing a picture or copying well, uh, quotes? Facebook has its own system to remove things that are infringing. And when I upload a picture onto Facebook, 
that NLAT user license agreement, there's part of it that says I'm giving Facebook a license and everybody on Facebook a license to put it on their page. They cannot use it for commercial purposes, but that's part of the license is that I'm giving everyone permission to share it. I'm putting it on Facebook. So they are getting a license, everything you put on there, and you can't change it. Every now and then there'll be this um, viral post going around saying, I hereby you know, revoke all these licenses. You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. And then they quote some really weird things that don't even exist, some, some, some treaties that you know, sound serious but aren't. But no, it's you, in that end user license agreement, it says they have a license to use the, anything you post. And you know, as a practical matter, once it's out there, what are you going to do anyway? Yeah. Right? I mean, it's a matter of getting caught. Like I said, when I was doing, when, when we were kids and we used to make those tapes, nobody found out. It's a lot easier to find people now. Yes. A lot easier to find them. So something as simple as this. We have an ends of court meeting this mm-hmm. evening and we do presentations. And some of the student, we have students and, and young lawyers mm-hmm. and old lawyers. And a lot of times we will we'll use movie clips. I use movie clips in my trial ad class. Mm-hmm. Am I in trouble for doing that? Actually, you got a very special part of the law for you, okay? There is a section called Section 110 of the Copyright Act, and it lists all these things that people can do for public performances that they don't need permission for. And one of them has to do with nonprofit education. So you can show clips. As long as it's not a bootleg clip, you can go for it. And what about teaching as an adjunct at SLU? Same thing. A, oh, okay. Same thing. We so can, I haven't violated the law? No, I show clips all the time. <laughs> I show movies all the time. I, you know, I, I uh, showed one last week called Don't Say Velcro uh, <laughs> about genericism. So, no, we, we, we have a special exemption just for us. Sounds great. Does that apply to copies of articles? There's another section, copies of articles, not public performance. There are guidelines actually put up by Congress that talk about how long the article can be and the idea they don't want to give carte blanche and have me photocopy my entire casebook. But short articles, so many times they do have an exception. They do have actually guidelines for limitation for for being able to make photocopies, make things available. So what about this? And here's what... I didn't even thinking that there's so many everyday applications to the this this topic. We get you know we subscribe to reporters of this the MedMal reporter or this reporter, and you know you're not supposed to duplicate it. And we've taken that through the years. I've taken that so seriously. You know we put the route sticker on it with the check mark, and then it goes down the list to the different attorneys. Well, well, that's fine. That's fine because you're not making a copy. This sounds so incredibly complicated, all of it. It really does. I mean, to me, it, it's every aspect of, of what we do. Like it, So many different areas, you don't even realize it. Yeah. IP is everywhere. Luckily, there's a lot of exceptions that keep us out of trouble. Like, I love my educational use so, exception. So what's the big beef with uh, the big... With, with China and the IP and, I guess, other countries, as you said, the law stops at our borders... And they don't have to recognize it? Or is there, is there international IP? There are treaties. There are treaties. There's the uh, World Intellectual Property Organization. There, there are treaties involving IP. But it's really up to a country to enforce its own laws. So if, let's say, China, somebody in China gets hold of a copy of uh, the newest, last Star Wars movie that's coming out, and they 
make tons of bootlegs. It's up to the Chinese government to enforce that in China. As long as they're not bootlegging it here in the U.S., once it comes into our country, and this is where um, our tax dollars actually are enforcing IP rights. So if I have goods, if I have, so that movie is made by Disney, and Disney is a mark, you know, trademark. They can register their mark with the copyright. They can bring a copy of that registration to Customs and Border Control and say, stop anything coming in because it's bootleg. But now with all the digital stuff, I mean, how do you, how do you stop something from coming in anywhere? anywhere? That makes it much more difficult, much more difficult. One of the bigger problems that has had happened wasn't so much infringement as us losing control of our R&D. So Schwinn Bicycle, for example, they started manufacturing abroad. Then they moved their R&D abroad, and they started having their, their very foundation all the research and Stole, the creation stolen from them. No, not even stolen. They didn't own it anymore. It was now owned by the manufacturer, by their contract manufacturer over there. Then their contract manufacturer over there turns around and starts selling it cheaper. And it's Schwinn was decided that you know they lost control of their own by their own fault. Well, do other countries have laws somewhat similar to what we have in terms of intellectual property? Yes. Most countries are signatories for copyright uh, for what's called the Berne Convention. In fact, the U.S. joined about 100 years after everybody else because we liked stealing stuff from other people's works. <laughs> and then we realized we it needed... caught us up. And then we realized, we, yeah, we caught up. And then we realized we wanted our stuff protected because now, you know, in the 1980s, suddenly things much easier to, for our stuff to be stolen across. So we had stuff worth stealing. So we joined the Berne Convention, which is why we dropped all our formalities and why things like architectural works are now protected. Because buildings are, by their very nature, useful. Okay? Copyright does not protect useful things. Well, building, you have an office, you, have a, you live in it, you work in it. They're the things that are ornamental on a building may be under copyright. So, for example, if it was still under copyright, the gargoyles on Notre Dame, you know, we don't consider it useful that they ward off evil spirits, mm-hmm. but they are copyrightable. But the building itself is not. Blueprints of a building are copyrightable. So if I make an unauthorized copy of blueprints... But what we had to do in the early 90s was change the law so that buildings themselves now have some copyright. So you can't just go around and look at it and build one identical to it? Well, it depends when the building was built. Older buildings. And, and you, can't, you, you can't monopolize common features. So if I'm in the Southwest and I have a Southwest-looking building, you can't monopolize that. So what, what is the, the fundamental premise behind all of this protection? Is it innovation, protecting innovation? It's, um, well, for copyright, copyright's not about innovation. Patent law is about innovation. Copyright is about creative expression. And the idea is we want to incentivize people to be creative because we all benefit from their creativity. So that's the, um, that's the economic incentive vision. We do not have what's called natural rights in copyright, meaning without any law, we still have rights to it. It's created. We've created the, those. Rights. We create. We they have to be created by statute. Here's another one on my website. I used to have people commenting, other people publishing, and I didn't know, and I didn't know how to figure it out. Is somebody taking other people's work and presenting it as their own, especially in comments? I knew the co-authors, but especially in comments. And uh, this is probably a good chance to talk about the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. I signed up for that. 
But can you ex- explain what that's about? Okay. So when we started having websites and we started having our first message boards where people could post things, there was this guy who was a former member of the Church of Scientology and decided to publish all of their works on there. And Scientology didn't like this, so they went to the web host and they said, we want you to shut them down. And their system, they said, we can't, our system won't allow it. And so they were sued. And this scared all of the internet service providers. They're like, whoa, we should not be responsible for what other people are loading up on their website. So they got Congress to pass the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, Section uh, 512. And 512 lays out what's called a safe harbor. It says, as long as you let people know, if you continue to infringe, we're going to take you down. And as long as you implement reasonable measures based on the current technology, we're going to give you four safe harbors that you're not going to be held liable for infringement for four things. One is email. So I'm on Gmail. If I send somebody an infringing file, Gmail is not responsible. We don't want them looking, well, more than they already do. We don't want them looking at our emails. Okay. Good luck. Yes, exactly. So, but they're not liable for me sending infringing things. We don't want them looking at our email. They also got an exception for what's called system caching, which basically, when, in order to make the system work faster, you ever go onto a website and let's say you're following the score of the Cardinals game. And you're like, damn, it's still the third inning? I th- it's been two hours already, and you have to hit refresh. Well, what it, what's happening is the website is saying, you know what, we're just going to keep that old copy here because it's going to work a lot faster than if we keep having to go to the Cardinals website and bring it back. If you hit refresh, then we're going to go and get another copy. That's system caching. And, because, and that's also an exemption because otherwise it's an unauthorized copy to have it sitting there waiting for someone else to want it. A third one has to do with hosting a website. So be it eBay or Amazon or any web host, as long as they don't know it's infringing, they have actual knowledge of the infringement, and once they're told they take it down in a reasonable time, they're not liable either. But there is no affirmative duty for them to look for infringing stuff. Uh, for example, for on eBay, if somebody is posting, uh, saying, I want to sell a Tiffany bracelet, Who's in a better position to know if it's infringing, Tiffany or eBay? Tiffany is. Otherwise, eBay won't exist because they're going to be worried about being liable for anything that's there that's Mm -hmm. infringing. And the fourth safe harbor is hyperlinks. So if if you put a hyperlink on, you're not responsible for what's at the other end. Because you may put that link on and it's fine, and then next thing you know, now something at the other end is infringing. So those are the four safe harbors that you get. And the biggest one that usually comes up is this one about notice and takedown. Hey, you are this website has so, that you host has something infringing on it. Take it down, and they have they have to take it down. And then once they take it down, then they contact the person who was, had put it up and said, "Hey, we took this down. Now, if you have a defense that says it should be up again, let us know, and we'll put it back up." Is there any other topic that? like to cover that we haven't oh my goodness well i know john was interested in buildings yes about how you know we and you cut you touched on it a little bit and that is are they protected by the intellectual property or buildings protected there is now a section of the copyright act that protects the actual buildings that protects unique features so it first of all buildings that were built prior than a certain date they don't fall but one thing that's also remember the blueprints have always been copyrightable the blueprints of a building that if that 
original expression on those blueprints is protectable. So I can't go and make photocopies of the blueprints. So for instance, if an architect is designing a home for me and those plans are owned, owned by the architect. Correct. Unless you agree for them to give you ownership. And they can give you limited ownership. They can say, we give you permission to make photocopies, but we don't give you permission to share it with your friends. Or maybe I can build a second house the same way. (laughs) (laughs) This actually comes up a lot with quilting. This is a big issue with quilters. Oh, yes. This is a big issue with quilters. So quilters, there's some quilters out there who make amazing patterns, totally protectable works of authorship. And they sell these patterns. So, and they give limited rights. They're like, we, you know, to make a quilt from a pattern is making a derivative work. So you need permissions that will say, you can make as many quilts as you want with this pattern, but you can't sell the quilts. Or you can make these one quilt with this pattern. You cannot make photocopies with this pattern. There isn't an area I can think of that isn't impacted by IP. Yeah, every business has IP, whether they realize it or not. Their name alone is a mark. It's their brand. And if they have a logo that's a picture, that picture is not just, that, if you think of it as a picture and not as the brand, that's copyrightable. They have, that's an original work of authorship fixed in a tangible medium of expression. Well, this has been entertaining as well as educational. And it, uh, as John mentioned, it's, it's ubiquitous. It's this big invisible network of laws that you, you don't appreciate until you sit down and throw a bunch of examples around. It's, it's been uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for persevering for, you know, <laughs> yeah. two episodes. Oh, happy to it's come it's always third. good. Yeah, it's always good to see you. <laughs> oh, and definitely. thank you so much for coming. This, this has really been educational. It's been fun. It oh, really has. I'm happy to come again. So, Sounds good. Great. You've been listening to Yvette Liebesman. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith. John Simon. See you next time. John and Eric would like to hear from you. They invite you to email your comments and suggestions to comments at thejuryisout.law. To learn more about the dedicated trial lawyers of the Simon Law Firm, visit simonlawpc.com.